Hello and welcome to the 13th series of the DNV Talks Energy Podcast. I'm your host, Matthias Steck. During this series, we'll be exploring some of the key insights from DNV's Energy Transition Outlook, our annual independent model of the world's energy system, and what they mean for the future of our planet. Across the series, with the help of leading industry guests, we'll shed light on what's happening right now and the forecast as we move forwards. We'll explore topics from the geopolitical developments affecting the energy transition to what's needed from technology, finance and policy in delivering net zero. Crucially, we ask, how do we move from ambition to urgent action over climate change? I'm delighted to be joined by Kasunari Fukui, decarbonization leader for Asia at GE Gas Power and responsible for the development of power service business in Asia-Pacific, covering North Asia, ASEAN and ANZ regions. In this episode, we focus on the global energy security crisis and we ask the question, has net zero been sidelined? Together with my guests, we will explore solutions for how countries can balance immediate energy security needs while at the same time accelerating the move towards clean energy production and distribution. We hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome, Cast, to DNV Talks Energy. It's a pleasure having you here. Thank you very much for inviting us, Matthias, and I very much look forward to our conversation. And for a start, Cast, it would be great for our listeners if you could briefly introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background in GE. Sure. Uh, so uh, my name is Kaz Fukui. I currently manage the Asia Gas Power Decarbonization for the region. I've been with GE for 16 years, primarily working in the uh, energy sector, working on the various business development marketing area. The recently I've been managing the power service business managing our fleet in Asia-Pacific, and then just transfer to this uh, decarbonization role. So the last couple of years, we have seen quite a few crises, which all had an impact on the power sector. We had a demand shock during the COVID crisis. We have a supply shock now due to the invasion of the Ukraine to Russia. And at the same time, we have seen very visible signs of climate change, which remind us that the energy transition is a very important thing to drive forward. In your view, what do these competing crises, what impact do they have on the energy transition? Certainly. And then we saw in our uh, customers' operation as well right, in the industry in terms of uh, changing the demand, changing operation of our uh, units and fleets in the market, and then associated uh, changes in the fuel price and so on, impacting our customers. What we see in this dynamics is both opportunities and threat. In terms of the environment, uh, we see increased awareness of the customers and then also the governments alike in terms of energy security, uh, making sure that their portfolio of energy solutions are working rather than relying on one type of solution. And when you look at the changes in the commodity prices and so on, we see this as a potential opportunity as well. With increasing fuel prices, that means it drives the more awareness in terms of energy efficiency, makes more of the clean technologies more competitive in the market space. So there are various dynamics we see together with these uh, so-called crises being faced. So in terms of the timeline of these impacts on the energy transition, how persistent do you think will they be? Is that more like a short-term effect or will that have an impact on the overall race to net zero to 2050? Or will it maybe even help us to accelerate in parts? Yeah, so um, that's a very challenging question, Matthias, to ask. And then certainly we all know the challenge of uh, achieving net zero by many governments and countries target by 2050 is a very aggressive target. And everyone's racing towards that. Now, I think this uh, short-term crisis did both things, uh, Matthias. Back to the point I made earlier in terms of the near term, uh, they caused some slowdown. You see some of the governments in uh, Europe 
shifting back to traditional technologies in order to secure the energy security. But at the same time, it drove some of the more uh, acceptance, economical viability of some of the more uh, cleaner technology in place as well, right? So I think the dynamics is both. It's very difficult to say at this stage whether it's simply made us reach the 2050 quicker or slower at this stage. So in your opinion, how much does this imbalance play a role now that we have of course this fact which you just mentioned that in Europe there's a strong pressure also to become independent of energy supply but at the same time we of course see cost increase we see high inflation we see mounting government debt what does it mean for the balance of the energy transition globally and I think that's a good point Matthias that's the, what this brought into the picture is the awareness of the complexity of solutions we are trying to tackle and the realization that uh, one solution doesn't resolve all, right? So relying completely on renewable uh, just because it's more economical and it's green doesn't help there when it comes to the grid stability or energy security aspect of it. And there is now realization that we have to pay for that piece as well. But again, newer technologies, as they get introduced, they become more cost competitive as well. We've seen the dynamics in the renewable sector and hopefully in areas like hydrogen, carbon capture, etc. Similar dynamics takes place in terms of bringing down the economics, right? So maybe there's a near-term impact in terms of that kind of increase in energy price and so on. But then uh, again, over time, hopefully this balances out and then, uh, yeah, brings to the, the cleaner solutions there. So we have heard from previous COP events that ambitions of world leaders are defined towards 2030, 2050. We haven't seen maybe the actions we wanted to see. What role do the important industry stakeholders play here? And GE most certainly being a very important stakeholder in the energy industry. How can you contribute to help this race to net zero? So as an OEM of various technologies, uh, we feel we're a pretty unique position. GE, we're privileged to have a portfolio of solutions in this space. So we're not only talking about the gas power, which I represent, but then we're looking at the renewables, uh, the nuclear, the hydro, then storage solutions, digital solutions, and so on. So we're looking through the various portfolio of solutions. We have a vantage point to look at what the industry requires. And the role of the OEM is to provide, uh, number one, the reality of what the technology is feasible. To do. So we got to be very clear in terms of what the technology solution can be provided to policymakers and to our customers. And then also we have to influence in terms of making sure the best technologies are being adapted in the right way. So that's uh, really our position in terms of having the understanding of technologies and its potential, making sure the uh, advocacy works for the governments and then our customers so that the right solutions are being implemented over the long period of time. So gas may be one of the energy sources which we still need for quite some time, but there is of course now also a lot of pressure on this energy source. If you see then all the competing energy sources we have and we have in mind the large amount of renewables we will add, how does that, looking a little bit behind the scenes, inform your way forward as an organization? Again, coming back to this theme, how you contribute, right? So what are the key technologies you would say now going forward? So when you look at the industry, Matthias, uh, I think you agree the power demand continues to increase. We see the uh, global capacity increase by more than twice over the next 30 years. Generation requirement increasing by 70% over the next 30 decades. These are the unstoppable factors. So that's number one. And then to accommodate that, we need more generation capacity. Of course, the renewable growth, uh, there's no question about it. There will be a tremendous renewable growth between solar, wind, onshore, offshore, that will continue. But in parallel to that, as you deploy these renewable technologies, we need the dependable power to back it up. When the wind is not blowing, when the sun is not shining, uh, we need a backup power. 
Now, that can be in the form of storage, uh, and the storage technology is improving. But when you talk about the longer period of storage, really today we rely on the gas technology. Now, we believe this combination of renewable and gas to be a very key driver in achieving this net zero target eventually. Near term, the gas will provide a dependency and support for the renewable. And of course, uh, in the near term, it's natural gas operated. So you say there's still emission there. But the beauty of the gas technology is that over the long term, there's a potential to utilize uh, pre-combustion hydrogen or post-combustion carbon capture in order to achieve the zero emission technology. Right? So the beauty of the gas being the in the future, there's a potential to get to net zero, while in the near term, providing the immediate solution for renewable, it be, we see as a winning combination in this space. I would like to go deeper on this in two angles. So first of all, on the replacement of gas by hydrogen in, for example, hard to abate sectors. How do you see the pace of which that is moving, which is then leading over to technologies, actually, if we are not fast enough to close the gap, reducing the emissions as much as we need to? How do you see then CCUS as the viable technology to solve this problem? If you deploy the gas technology methods, we believe there's a two stages of emission reduction. Right? Firstly, it's uh, switching from coal. Coal to gas shift already reduces uh, 50 to 60 percent emission down. The latest technology, AHA technology we have, it comes down to 60 percent reduction. So that's number one. And then to your point about for the future, how do we get to the hydrogen and CCUS? Hydrogen, no doubt, there's going to be a significant challenge right, in terms of infrastructure build, uh, economic variety of it. And there will be a tremendous challenge in terms of infrastructure. Technologically, actually, the hydrogen presents less technology difficulty for us. Today, our gas turbines, we have 100 gas turbines operating on the hydrogen or equivalent uh, low calorie value fuels. And there's about 8 million hours of operation already. So in terms of can our gas turbines buy hydrogen, they can burn the hydrogen. Now, different degrees of hydrogen, of course. Some units can do 100%. Some units were promising 50%. Most recent demonstration we have done is in New York. New York Power Authority has done demonstration with one of uh, aero derivative LM6000 units, and they achieved 44% hydrogen. So these technology are there. But question comes to hydrogen supply and then how much of this we can achieve. And then when you come to the capture technology, again, technology based on AME capture has been allowed. This has been already deployed globally in the various uh, chemical plants, oil refinery plants, and so on. It's a question of, again, getting to the scale and the economics of it in terms of implementation. And we see that as a challenge. So it's more of the, the infrastructure challenge, the economy of scale challenge that we're looking at uh, versus the fundamental science or technology challenge. So how about then the rise of CCS and CCUS and, and the chances of that? Yeah, so this strongly depends on the local environment as well as uh, the policy support behind that. Of course, this presents additional cost to any customers or consumers, right? There's no, we don't have to do anything, we rather not to do carbon capture. But we have to capture the carbon. That's why the CCS solution comes in. When you look at the, the technology today, number one, it adds on the significant requirement on land. It's equivalent to almost building another power plant next to power plant. So significant land requirement, which is going to be a very challenging in Asia environment. And then also the associated cost. It will add on to the cost in terms of capture. So unless there is a, a support mechanism in incentivizing this or penalizing on the emission, by means of carbon tax. This will be very difficult technology for anybody to put their own money and implement in place. So talking a bit more about trends we see in hydrogen, hydrogen production and the different colors of hydrogen, one very interesting area is to combine offshore wind electricity production with then electrolysis to hydrogen, either offshore or onshore. What would be GE's view, your view on where this is going? 
We highly encourage the all sort of development in this space, right? And then we see, to your point, uh, people trying different flavors of hydrogen today. We see significant development in the region as well, uh, naming places like Australia, developing green hydrogen development. And offshore certainly present a promising uh, renewable source for the region. We see lots of offshore developments in uh, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, and then uh, Vietnam as well, we're talking now. And leveraging that electricity to generate uh, green hydrogen uh, certainly is a viable thing. But we also have to be cognizant about the one solution not providing another problem. Creating green hydrogen, of course, there's a challenge in terms of water requirement, which requires a significant amount of water. Again, we need access to the water uh, to be able to generate hydrogen. Right? So one thing we are always constant about is that we're not creating another problem by solving one problem in one place. So coming now from these opportunities, new technologies, we will have remaining industries which still create large pollutions. What could be promising technical solutions there to help? And I believe that's why there's so much attention to the energy sector. So if you think about the global emission, energy sector only represents 40%. So why do we talk about so much about uh, reducing the emission from energy sector? That's because we believe decarbonization or getting the energy sector clean has got a potential implication to other areas in terms of spreading the benefit, right? And then to your point, there could be a manufacturing process which can be electrified, transportations which can be electrified, and so on. So there is a ways to do that. So in our view, uh, to achieve this uh, net zero uh, requires a balance. There will be certain industrial processes which you cannot stop the emission. Then you have to get some of the emissions down in other places, or even talk about uh, negative emission in terms of direct air capture and so on, right? So we believe all these uh, technology development to balance out and achieve this net zero rather than zero everywhere, I think is uh, really the key. One more area I'd like to go into is barriers which could hold us back, and these could be adjacent technologies as the grid, for example, for both electricity and gas, or even hydrogen, because at some point we need to get it uh, to the households and the factories. What do you think needs to be done there, and do we need to see more investment in this place? That's a brilliant point you bring, Matthias. It's completely true. We've been focusing our discussion so far on generation side. But certainly, as a business as well, we see a challenge on the grid aspect. Now, grid, of course, it was originally designed for unidirectional supply from central generation to the eventual users. And now we're talking about the bidirectional flow of the electrons in a grid. Also, the unpredictability of supply and demand causing lots of challenges for many of our customers as well. And then that's certainly dynamics that we're observing. And then with this, the flexibility of the power supply becomes very important. And that's where, again, another value of the gas technology brings is the flexibility. Uh, renewable, we have to depend on whatever the weather takes. When you have the flexible power, you can actually match the supply and demand much more effectively. So again, together with energy storage method, we believe that kind of flexible generation supply is required. But we agree completely there's a tremendous amount of investment required on the grid side. And our grid business is uh, significantly working on that area as well. And then leveraging technology like uh, digital technologies, uh, making the grid smarter and be able to manage the supply and demand, certainly a very big topic that we'll face. As the last question, I would like to ask you a personal question. In the last couple of years, we have all acknowledged that climate change is a threat. Despite that, we have seen that emissions have increased and we can't afford this going forward. So from your personal perspective, how optimistic are you that we will now actually see actions which drive us towards net zero so that we reach a 1.5 degree future. And I think that's an interesting dynamics, Matthias. We traditionally saw the uh, advanced economies 
the uh, consumption per capita energy efficiency improving, and then it was getting to a stable point or reducing in some countries. But now with electrification of things, the consumption going up. So, and then rising middle class and everything, again, there's no stop about our growth and then consumption of electricity, which in my personal view is a good thing. It's a progress for our society is a good thing. But then how to do it in sustainable, reliable and affordable manner, that becomes the question. Uh, I personally remain optimistic in this space, Matthias. I'm always impressed with the human ingenuity, advancing technologies we achieve when the right support framework is there. We've seen a number of cases throughout our history of this technology development. And even recently, we've been surprised with the rise of renewables and how economical we got and so on. So when you look at the future technologies like hydrogen, carbon capture, getting to net zero 2050, I personally remain pretty optimistic in the space. But of course, this is a very complex issue, which requires a global work together and collective effort to get there. So very much looking forward to the journey ahead. And then this kind of discussion, you know, the NVs hosting is a very important part of the equation. So really appreciate you hosting this event and then uh, allowing me to share this kind of thoughts here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kas. You covered a lot of ground and it was really great having you here. Great. Thank you very much, Matthias. The energy transition is an ongoing journey and Cass explained to us how we can meet urgent energy needs now by moving towards a cleaner energy future. In particular, he highlighted the role of gas, a lower carbon fuel which can be further decarbonized to limit its impact in bridging towards even cleaner energy use as we go forward. It was encouraging to hear his practical vision for how the world can reach net zero. Join us next time as we discuss global carbon emissions, the lower than hope for progress over reducing them and how major emission hotspots can be reduced in the effort to achieve net zero. To hear more podcasts in the series, please visit dnv.com slash talksenergy.